All right, pray with me. Holy Spirit, I thank you so much for allowing us to come into the house of the Lord. Um, that is not referring to the building. That is not referring to the walls. It's not referring to the concrete. It's not even referring to the name of the church. That's referring to the spirit of God as it moves, as it inhabits our praises, as it moves among the people. Um, the kingdom of God is the way we ought to be. It's the way we as a people ought to be. So the kingdom of God is sprouting up everywhere, Lord, and I, I praise you for allowing us to see and experience and be the kingdom of God today. Lord, I ask that you would help us be more than the sum of our parts as a church. I ask that you would help us gather and scatter effectively, um, that you would help us be more than just one member of something, um, but a contributing partner to a greater something. Lord, I pray that I can be a part of that. Um, I pray that as, as I bring this message that you brought to me, um, I pray that this is not my message, that it's your message, and that it again displays, portrays partnership in the kingdom of God, and that we in turn can display that partnership in the kingdom of God as we move forward through this week, through this month, um, through this year, and through this life, Lord. I pray for this church family. I ask that you would lift us all up as uh, the royal priesthood of, of believers, that you would teach us something about your character in this moment and in this day. It's in your mighty name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. Awesome. Okay, so like I said, Max was in this epistle. Um, and First John, so <laughs> when Max told me, um, when Max told me that he was working on First John, he, did, he said I could preach on anything I wanted, but I wanted, he had been doing a series. So I said that I would continue, but the thing that popped in my head was something that one of my seminary professors told me, which was, and I quote, Never do a Bible study or preach on 1 John. It's more complicated than you know, I promise, is what he told me. So we're going to keep going. <laughs> Maybe. Yay. No. Did I go back? That's the end. We can just end there if you want. Okay, there we go. I don't know. I'm, I'm hitting the button. Got it. Okay, it stopped. All right. Um, so I'm a background and context person. If you've ever heard me preach before, you know that I tend to try and like cram all of a book slash all of the Bible into one sermon. So we're going to try and do that again. Um, background for the Apostle John, first of all. Uh, this is John, the Apostle Jesus, the beloved disciple. That's It's all the same John. John wrote this epistle in Ephesus. He actually wrote all three of the epistles in Ephesus and the Gospel of John. Uh, Revelation was written on the island of Patmos. That, so John the Apostle was given Mary, Jesus' mom, to take care of. We read that in scripture. Okay. He and Mary go, once the temple falls in 70 AD, he takes Mary to Ephesus. So not for any particular reason other than potentially the persecution. He just wanted Mary to have a safe place in her old age, etc. Um, so when they go to Ephesus, he is living there as like a spiritual father, but he's not an elder of the church. Timothy is the elder of the church. We read that when Paul appoints Timothy, the elder of the church in 92. But after the, if you're a Catholic, ascension of Mary, and if you're not a Catholic, the death of Mary. Um, yeah, Karen's like, I know that. Yeah, I know that phrase. Um, I want to be inclusive. We're non-denom. I, I get it. Um, anyway, after that, John actually takes over as an elder from Timothy. Anybody know what happened to Timothy? He died. He was martyred. So um, he takes over after Timothy. Timothy was the elder of the church in Ephesus for 15 years. And then John takes over. Um, at some point after Mary's death and before his own, John is banished 
uh, for a time to Patmos, um, the island. And then at that time, he has the revelation, um, Revelation of Jesus Christ, which is actually the title of his book. He writes that in, in Revelation, I'm on the island of Patmos while I'm writing this. Yay. Okay. The right way. Um, the book of John, I already said this, they were written in Ephesus except, um, except for Revelation. Most scholars agree that this book is clearly written from John the Apostle. It's not a different John. Any scholars that disagree say that he at least was a disciple of John. Um, but the reason that most, like, I mean, a huge majority of scholars across many uh, theological lines agree that this is John is because it uses very strikingly similar language to the Gospel of John. And you'll even see, I don't know if we're going to get to this in detail, but you'll even see that the first chapter of 1 John parallels almost exactly the first chapter of the Gospel of John. So he talks about how Jesus is a light. He talks about how God is light in 1 John. So very much could you read these two in tandem and see, see how one interprets the other and vice versa. Um, but here's the fun fact about 1 John and why my seminary professor was correct. No one can agree. So you can agree kind of on a lot of that history. A lot of the early church fathers um, in 100 AD and continuing all say very similar things about John's life. But when they go to 1 John and actually any scholars or commentaries, they cannot agree anything about the book. They can't agree about the structure of the book. They can't agree that any of the ebbs and flows mean a certain thing. They can't find a particular planned argument. Um, most readers and scholars to this day are very perplexed by 1 John. So then... <laughs> Uh, you know, Max leaves for two weeks and I have to preach on it. So I'm like, okay, um, where, like, where are we going to begin? I mean, again, my professor said, like, if you want to talk about the gospel, talk about the gospel of John. Like if you, if you want to have a clear message about Jesus and the kingdom, go to the gospel of John, don't go to first John. And I understand that. Um, you know, and I guess I could have, I could have been like, Max, I'm putting up a white flag and going to the gospel of John, but I think first John has something to teach us. So I started looking at, I mean, what's the point of writing things down? Like, why, why do we write things down? Um, I mean, John wrote this, and he had a ton of stuff going on. Like I said, he was, the temple had fallen. He was taking care of not even his own mother, an aging mother of, um, obviously, his Savior. There's just so much going on. And then I think we can parallel that. We also have things going on. And in our hyper-technological world, like, what are the things that we view of as important enough to write down? Are they the things on our to-do list? Are they our calendar events, um, birthdays, anniversaries, cards, notes? I mean, are they, or are they just true statements? I think that John found it valuable to write down true statements. And I think the value of 1 John is looking at what he portrayed to be true statements. When I was in seminary, um, I was having a particular moment of crisis. I know the crisis was really important at the time. I cannot, for the life of me, remember what it was, so glad I got past it, but... Um, you know, I was, I reached out to a friend, a really close spiritual friend and, you know, I'm kind of not hyperventilating, but I'm just kind of hyper, hyper extending all these things that are going wrong or all these things that are, you know, I'm rattling off all these, these issues that I have and how I'm confused and stuff. And she very gently, but very firmly interrupts and says, what is true? What is true? And she starts making me say true statements about God, about myself, the most basic of truth statements. And in that, I found healing. In that, I was able to, I mean, if I was having a panic attack, which I've had those, but I don't know if I was in that moment, it was, it was pulling me out of whatever anxious spiral I was coming into. So 
When I look at, look at the book and I see that John values these truth writings, I'm looking at what is he saying is true? What are these basic truth statements? Some of the, some of the most basic statements that we have as we think about God and as we think about even the Apostles' Creed actually do come from 1 John. God is light, right? We remember this verse. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. Darkness is not in him. So God is light. Darkness is not in him. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus does cleanse all sin. We do have sin. And he says that we're a liar if we say we don't have sin. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. These are John's basic, and I don't mean basic as if, as if to say infantile. These are John's pillar foundational truth statements. And he picks up all of these themes as he, moves, as he moves through his book in ever-repeating circles about these themes, okay? So there's all these parallels in the book of 1 John. John's worth writings, that's what I call it, worth writing down. Light and darkness are parallel. Righteousness and unrighteousness, he mentions over and over. Love and hate. Hate is opposite of love, but so is disobedience in the book of 1 John. Interesting. Christ and antichrists. That you might not sin is opposed to, to lie and say we have no sin. Another very interesting statement. So, he puts on the, same, on the same page to say you have no sin and to sin. Very interesting. Knowing the Father as opposed to loving the world. God's eternal will as opposed to the world's passing lust. Truth as opposed to a lie. And to see him and to know him as opposed to having sin. So in that, while you're going, and again, I mean, I'm, you know, we're not too far away from Asbury here, so I'm taught, I'm taught in the uh, Asburyan way of teaching inductive Bible study. So you have to read through the book out loud several times if you're going to preach on it, you know, if you're going to study it. So while doing that, while looking through all of these parallels, there's four very, very foundational pillars that John has in this book that come up over and over and over again. And we can agree on these pillars. Most scholars can probably agree on these pillars, but how they're planned and how they're plot out is a little bit different. So these are John's four basic pillars. These also come up in the Gospel of John. The truths of God and of Christ, major pillar. Truths of God and of Christ. Another one, love as seen in having fellowship with God and having fellowship with others. There's, there is, other than the one statement in 1 John where he says God is love, there is no other time where John mentions love outside of loving another or loving God. Very interesting. Not being another one of his pillars, not being deceived by the world, by false teachers, by antichrists, or by the evil one. We'll talk about that more next week. And then confirmation that we are children of God. Max talked about that one last week. Um, remember, if we're going to listen to Amazon's uh, random, random strangers' uh, critiques and reviews, then we should definitely listen to the review or the confirmation of the Holy Spirit in us that we are children of God. So these are, these are the four pillars. Um, and... Max has touched on two of them, so I just went ahead and took the other two. So next week, we're going to talk about being deceived by antichrists. Yay! But this week, we're going to talk about love is seen in having fellowship with God and others. All right, so um, there's going to be a lot of scripture reading. You're going to think by the end of this sermon that we've read through all of John because there's so much scripture, but that's not true. There's still more of 1 John, but um, we're going to hit 1 John 2, uh, 12 through 14, and this is what he, he proclaims as his reasons for writing. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing 
to you, young men, because you have had victory over the evil one. Remember, that's one of his themes in this book. I have written to you. He changes the language. Some, some um, translations don't show the change of language. So it seems like he's repeating himself. He actually changes from saying, I am currently writing to I have written. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have had victory over the evil one. So the first chapter of John, like I said, first chapter of 1 John very much parallels the first chapter of the Gospel of John. It's very much about God, truths about God. And then this is almost his treatise about the people that he's writing to. I have heard so many kind of interpretations of this part of 1 John. Um, I don't know... I don't really know where y'all sit if y'all have heard a lot of interpretations about this. I, I'm okay with many interpretations, but I do think there's at least one level in which he's defining his audience here. And if that's the case, if there's one, one level, if you can read this multi, in multifaceted ways, there's one facet in which he's defining his audience. And surprisingly, his audience, he only almost exclusively after this passage in 1 John 2, he calls them little children or children. He does not refer at all again, he does not refer to anyone as a young man. He doesn't refer to anyone as a father other than obviously God. The only, he only uses three terms to refer to his audience after this chapter in 1 John. Beloved, children, which he uses primarily, and brothers. Which I think brothers, again, is kind of a testament to say I'm actually a little child with you. So I think there's kind of this essence in which we're not supposed to be, we're not supposed to be more than God's children. And you see it come up in 1 John 3, 1 through 3. It's almost immediately after this chapter. The great love of the Father. Look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now. So this is, this is important. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed to us. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because... We will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Hang on, go back. Okay. So he talks about the joy of being God's children. And he says, right now we are God's children. What we will be, we do not yet know. But right now we are God's children. So I think there's a bit of humility that John is trying to impart on. This is, he's writing to the Ephesian church. So I think there's a bit of humility he's trying to impart onto the Ephesians and then spiritually trying to impart onto us. We are God's little children. We, yes, we carry the role of father. Yes, we carry the role of the quote unquote young men who have overcome the evil one. But there's so many times in the rest of the book of 1 John where he talks about, please don't let yourself be overcome by the evil one. Little children, don't let yourselves be overcome by the evil one. So I think he's setting up, in essence, I think he's setting up a journey of faith and saying we sit as God's children journeying towards the young men who are overcome, who are not overcome by evil, the fathers who know the one from the beginning. So if we are, and if we are God's children, that makes me have some questions for us. So question one, where are you a child with God in your walk, in your life, in your day-to-day? Where are you a child with God? First John 3 again. 
Look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. How are you being God's child now? And another way to ask it or a deeper way to ask it is, where are you being a child of God where he may reveal truths to you and plant seeds? So most of you know that I'm a um, manager, leader, HR director, whatever I am with Culver's. Um, and we have an orientation packet that I developed and created and everything. And, um, you know, I developed that with the original owner-operator. And one of the things that he wanted at the end of the packet was to remind the trainers, or sorry, to remind the new team members to be coachable. So we always give a speech at the end of every orientation. We always give a speech that says, like, you know, here are the, here are the eight things that we want you to keep having. And if you have these things... You're going to have a long life with Culver's. If you don't have these things, there's nothing we can do for you, and we may need to part ways. And one of those things is being coachable. Um, and one of the things that I love saying when I'm in the orientation is like, okay, you're not going to have an issue being coachable, coachable when you're here for like the first two weeks. Like, of course, you're going to be coachable. You have no idea what's going on. When you're going to have an issue being coachable is when you've worked here for six months or even a year, and someone tells you you're doing something wrong, and you're like, no, no. I've worked here for six months. I've worked here for a year. I know what I'm doing. You're doing it wrong. And I've actually had that conversation with multiple people. So... I think that's true of the faith as well. I think, you know, if we had a eight things that we need to have to remain Christian, I think one of the things on there would be coachable, would be teachable, to remain like a child. Jesus calls us this as well, right? Jesus says, let the little children come home to me, and he also tells the disciples, be like children. You'll enter the kingdom of God as you become like children. Don't look for the greatest among you, but be like children. So what does it mean to be like children? Again, John, dress, John addresses us as little children, the, the Ephesians and us. Little children we must not love with word or speech, but with truth and action. This is how we will know we belong to the truth and will convince our conscience in his presence. Even if our conscience condemns us, that God is greater than our conscience and he knows all things. Very complicated passage. Most people who read this passage, most scholars who read this passage will write like, 12 books on these three verses. So um, there's a lot of complicated things in here. I think the way we're approaching it right now, or the way that I'm approaching it through the sermon, I guess, um, if John is speaking to the Ephesians and spiritually to us, if John is speaking to us as little children, what is he saying to the little children of God, right? It's John says in the passage just before this, John says it's a privilege to be known as the children of God. We are the children of God, what we will become, whether that's young men who conquer evil, whether that's fathers who have known the Lord from the beginning, will not be revealed. But what we are right now is little children. So he's saying little children, this is what we must do, right? We must not love with word or speech, but with truth and action. And this, he says, this is like proof. This is how... We will know we belong to the truth, as in Jesus. He, he defines truth as Jesus early, early on in this book. This is how we will know we belong to, the truth, belong to the truth, and this is how he will convince our spirit, our conscience, in his presence. So Max last week talked about um, being convinced by the Holy Spirit, and I, I think we can continue that lesson here 
Uh, we're not talking a huge amount of the conviction of the Holy Spirit today. But in this passage, he's getting at this concept that your heart does not define who you are. Your concept of who you are does not define who you are, in essence. Because there's someone greater than our conscience. There's someone greater than whatever is inside us telling us right or wrong. Whatever's inside us telling us truth or lie. That greater person is the person of the Holy Spirit that, and who is truly God. God is greater than our conscience. God is greater than that which inside of us identifies ourselves. God is greater than our understanding of identity. And he says, he says, and he knows all things about us. He says that we are little children of God and what we will become is not yet revealed. First John 3, 9. My, my little side note, this is probably the most, uh, uh, what's the word? This is the most like statement that I make that's not straight out of scripture is that truth is not a hammer. But anyway, I'll explain it. Truth is not a hammer, it is a seed. Everyone who has been born, that's going back to the children language, everyone who has born of God does not sin because his seed, God's seed, remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. And this is how God's children and the devil's children are made evident. Okay. So if I can tie all this up a little bit. Remember John's pillars, which I could probably go back to that, maybe. Yeah, I can. Okay. Remember John's four pillars. So the four things that he most cares about in, in 1 John are the truths of God in Christ. Love is seen in having fellowship with God and others, not being deceived by the world's false teachers, antichrist or the evil one, and confirmation that we are children of God. In the one passage that we just read, he actually brings up every single one of these. What he is saying is basically a, a thesis statement, if I can be so bold, since nobody agrees where John's thesis is in this book. But basically what he's saying is a thesis statement. You cannot have truth without love. You cannot have love unless you are a confirmed child of God. You cannot be a confirmed child of God if you listen to false teachers. And you cannot be a confirmed child of God without knowing the truths of God. So how do I know the truths of God? Because I am a child of God. How do I know I'm a child of God? Because I'm seen loving others. How, how can I possibly be loving others? Because I know the truth and I'm obeying it. And how do I know who doesn't have, how do I know who doesn't have the truth of God? Those who love the world and not the Father. I'll go back to the thesis. Okay. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin, does not follow the false teachers, because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin. If the truth, if the truth seed is sprouting, he is not able to sin. The person, the child, is not able to sin, because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children are made evident. So we just, I know it feels like we went through a lot of scripture, but we actually just went through part of two and part of three. And in part of two and part of three, John is, I mean, I honestly think John is swelling up this, this thesis statement to take home. That perhaps it is not so bad to be little children, to be seedlings, if you want to use the, that's kind of why I have the tree thing. If you want to use John's language here, the seed is welling in him. 
It's not so bad to be little children. As much as, and again, I've heard so many sermons on that passage in 1 John 2 about, I'm writing to the little children, I'm writing to the young men, I'm writing to the fathers. I've heard so many sermons about identifying who's the father, who are the young men, who are the children. And I do think on some planes, we are supposed to be living into that. We live into the, and I think the young men concept is actually, it's young men and women, but I think it's in the Greek, it's more like young warrior. You're supposed to understand that person is a warrior. So a warrior is one who conquers the evil one. So yes, we are supposed to live into conquering the evil one. The father, a father is one who knows the traditions of the past, aka knows God from the beginning and passes that on. Yes, we're supposed to live into knowing the traditions from the past and passing that on to future generations. That's why we named our church generations. But I think there's so much lost in the Christian walk when we try to grow past being the little children of God. We try to grow into something more than we are not. We try to, when we are not, that we are not yet. That John says we are not yet. What we, what we will become is not known to us. But what is known to us is that we are little children. We are seedlings. So if we remember that, remember, we remember that what we are to become has not yet been revealed. What we know is that we are children of God. And that is enough. Like it is, it is, it is enough in a world that tries to define you and tries to define your children and tries to define your society and tries to define your worth. It is enough to know that you are a child of God. It is enough. And we have to, in this hyper, quick, quick to define, quick to uh, divide, quick to conquer, quick to put us in a tribe, quick to put us in a box, we have to let it wash over us that we are defined as children of God. Nothing else and nothing is greater than that, that we are God's children, according to John. So if we remember that, the final take home is that to be God's children is to look for truth, to seek after truth, wherever the seeds of truth present themselves. And we can only do that as we abide in his love, according to 1 John. If we abide in his love, just like a seed abides in the tree until it's ready, if we abide in his love, we will be able to recognize the other seeds. And more so, the seed is growing within us. The truth is growing within us. If you are abiding in Jesus, the truth of God is growing in you. They are right there. They are present. Oh, I thought I had a final slide. It was just of a tree and a seed. Okay. So I'm going to pray in a second, and then I'm going to invite the worship leaders up. But I, I want to take a moment of perhaps awkward silence, which sometimes awkward silence is necessary, but I want to take a moment of silence to just reflect with your families or privately. I don't, I don't have a preference, but just reflect on what it means for you to be a child of God in this world and what that practically looks like when you step out of church and you step into your mission field. I mean, what does that look like when you leave to go to Nicholasville, to go to Danville, to go to Richmond, to go to Lexington? Like, what does it mean, Wilmore, what does it mean to be a child of God in those places? And what does it mean when you're being a child of God? What does it mean to remember, to remember that the truth is growing inside you as you abide in him? I mean, it's very, very hard to do that, I think. 
I don't think that John is writing it. And this is one of the reasons that scholars are so confused. I don't think John is writing it literally over and over and over and over again and referencing back to it because it's an easy thing for us to remember. I think John is writing it over and over and over again and referencing back to it constantly because it's not an easy thing for the Ephesians or for ourselves to remember. So if you want to talk to your family or if you want to just contemplate by yourselves just for a few minutes and then I'll pray us out and the musicians can come up. What does it mean for you in your world in your day-to-day to be a child of God? And what does it mean for you to be a child with God, allowing him, allowing him to feed you truth, allowing him to grow truth and well up truth in you as a seed?